Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Donna Hicks, the author of Leading with Dignity. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite and first conversations on the podcast. Dr. Hicks is an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. She's a leading expert on dignity studies and conflict resolution and has worked extensively in areas of conflict around the world. In the conversation, Dr. Hicks and I discuss the meaning of dignity and how it differs from respect, the 10 elements of dignity, dignity and conflict resolution, what it means to lead with dignity, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. You can learn more about Dr. Hicks at drdonnahicks.com. And a quick note before we begin, for anyone not already a subscriber, I encourage you to visit Perennial Meditations on Substack to sign up for our daily meditations and courses on the art of living. There's also an option to become a paid member, which helps support all of our ad-free podcasts like this one. All right, without any further delay, I now bring you the wise and gracious Dr. Donna Hicks. Dr. Donna Hicks, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Great. You're the author of the book, Leading with Dignity. And as I stated before the show started, I love the book and I'm really excited for the conversation today on this very important topic. Before we get into your work, would you mind sharing a bit of your background? Sure. I spent most of my career, uh, the last 25 years, working as a facilitator and mediator in international conflict resolution. And my work had been to help parties who are in these really intractable, difficult conflicts, like the Middle East and Sri Lanka and Northern Ireland and Colombia before they signed the peace treaty, all of these conflicts, my organization at Harvard, which is the Weatherhead Center, we were asked to come in and facilitate dialogues between these parties in the hope that we would be able to find a way to move the peace process along a little bit. And so in that role, I'll tell you, Joshua, I learned a whole lot about dignity, maybe even more about indignity. And so it was just so obvious to me that even though the parties were always haggling over political issues that divided them, it was obvious that there was a human dimension to these conflicts that we weren't talking about at the negotiating table. We just weren't talking about them. And yet, because I'm a psychologist, I often look for the conversations that aren't being had at these tables. And no matter where I was, it was always the same thing. It's almost like there were two conversations happening at the same time. One was at the top of the table on the political issues. And then there was this emotional undercurrent that was taking place under the table 
which was wreaking havoc. That was that human emotional reaction to what people were hearing and all of that. And so at that point, I realized, you know what, before we have this discussion about the politics, we've got to handle this emotional turmoil that's in the room. And very long story short, and I'll fast forward, I ultimately realized that what this human dimension was about was about being treated as if they didn't matter, about being treated as if they weren't even human beings. And so I came up with this word dignity to describe that. And after many, many tries in trying to get them to discuss this emotional undercurrent, once I started using the word dignity, once I started saying to them, hey, would you like to talk to me about ways in which you felt your dignity was violated by the other side? Well, Joshua, when I used that word, there was something magic entered the conversation because they said, dignity? Yeah, sure. We'll talk about our dignity. And then the floodgates opened. So I thought, okay, this is the word that I have to use. And I started researching it. And it took me seven years to write my first book about this. And then I went into the corporate world, into healthcare, into education, because once that first book came out, everybody realized, oh my God, maybe our conflicts are about dignity in the workplace and all that. So that's when I started leading with dignity, because after I went into these places, these workplaces, no matter where they were, it was dignity violations all over the place. And nobody was talking about them. Nobody was mentioning them. So anyway, I wrote the book leading with dignity because I found out quickly that if the leadership of these organizations that I went into, the workplace, if they didn't care about dignity, nothing was going to change. There was the toxic work culture was just going to continue unabated because people were too afraid to talk about it. So what I did with that book, as you well know, is that gave people a language that they could use. Yeah. Thank you so much, Donna. I appreciate the context around that. And it As I was reading the book, and I've read a number of leadership books over the years and on different topics, I was surprised of how few times the word dignity came up in many of these books. So I was wondering, to begin the discussion, I would love it if you could kind of provide a brief overview of maybe what dignity is and what it isn't. Yeah, that's always a good place to start because people confuse dignity with other things. And What I discovered when I started doing my own research on what dignity is, you know, the philosophers were going wild with this concept. They were going back and forth trying to define it. It's not this, it's not that. And the theologians also, they talk about dignity all the time, but nobody really gave a practical definition of what it is so that anybody could understand it. You know, there's all this academic wrangling in the literature. And I thought, no, you know, I need something I can use. I need something I can take on the road and help people with, whether it's in the workplace or in schools or in medicine and healthcare. I need something that I can immediately help people with so that they'll understand it just like that. So the simple definition that I came up with was that dignity is each and every one of us was born with dignity. And it basically is our inherent inborn value and worth. All human beings have value. And in fact, I would even say that we're invaluable. Human life, it's priceless Hmm, and it's irreplaceable. And so it's so simple. We are born with dignity. But here's the thing that most people don't think about, Joshua, and that is that 
even though we're born, we have this inherent value and worth, we're also inherently vulnerable to having that dignity violated. So it is as tender and as fragile as our physical being. We can have our life ended in one second with one gunshot or a blow to the head, but we don't think about our dignity being so vulnerable. But this was the message that I really needed to get across. Yes, you're valuable. You're born with dignity. But be careful because you got to protect yourself because you can have it injured in a nanosecond. The difference between dignity and respect is an important distinction. I'm sure because you've been looking at this topic, everywhere you hear the word dignity, it's almost like dignity and respect. It's almost the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it is not the same thing. And in my formulation of the difference, as I said, we were all born with dignity. It's We don't even have to do anything. We have to learn how to act like we have dignity, but we have, it's in our DNA. And so that's the baseline. That's where we start, or where I'm hoping to get people to realize that we all need to treat each other with dignity. But respect, on the other hand, I think respect has to be earned. And when I was working in these fierce international conflicts where people were killing each other and you know they were really demanding respect i would say to them wait a minute you can't demand respect but what you can demand is to be treated with dignity that is a demand that we can do something about and that is a discussion that we can have and i would facilitate dialogues around that all right how do we create a situation here in this conflict where we can at least treat each other with dignity So anyway, it's an important distinction. Respect has to be earned. Dignity, you don't have to do anything. Yeah, great. I love that. I'm glad you uh, included the respect. After reading that, I was yeah just contemplating on how different those two are. You begin the book with three really kind of important questions, and I was hoping we could just briefly touch on them if we could. The first one, what does this common desire to be valued tell us about the human experience? Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, you know, I've never been anywhere. I've traveled the world. I've worked all over the world, probably on every continent, maybe not Antarctica, but I've worked all over the world and have talked to people, interviewed people. And it is really a defining characteristic of what it means to be human, that we all want to be treated as if we mattered. And we had cultural differences and God knows there are so many ways that we can slice up how we're different from one another. And, you know, we've got all this diversity training to really understand our differences. But at the end of the day, Joshua, the fact is that we need a unifying factor in our attempts to try to understand one another. And understanding diversity is critically important. And we also have to take it another step. That other step is understanding how we are all alike. And this common yearning to be treated with dignity is the way that I think we can all find unity because the cultural differences are too big and we do need to understand all those. But even in our country now, this is so critically important. We need unity more than anything. And this is why I think the language of dignity, because everybody wants it. And I think it's our highest common denominator as human beings. I think we can all aspire to that. And to all just rally around this notion that, okay, you know, we can learn lots of things. We can learn technology. We can learn science, mathematics, all of this stuff. 
but let's focus on learning how to treat each other with dignity. Do you see it as a just almost deeper than a desire, like a yearning Mm. for this dignity? Yeah, sometimes I use the word desire and some, I mean, it's not strong enough. I think yearning is really it. It's a soul yearning. It comes from something deep. And in fact, I always say, you can't dig down any deeper than dignity. (laughs) You hit rock bottom once you get to dignity in human beings. And so I really think this is why, I mean, my work appeals to so many people. And I do this all over the, I mean, I just did a big webinar in New Zealand, in Australia, you know, this doesn't matter where I apply it. People are people. And so it is really quite stunning to me that this is some language that we can use to try to understand our connectivity and our possibility for connection as human beings. And one of the questions you also posed there is, how does an awareness of dignity influence our ability to lead people? Oh, it's a big one. I mean, I think I work with all kinds of leaders, Joshua, of organizations from big corporations to small NGOs or to big hospitals and universities. And what I find is that I would say for the most part, almost like 95% of the time, the leaders I work with are all just wonderful people, really good people. And they might be violating the dignity of their employees and not even know it because there's nowhere in our educational system. I mean, certainly when I was growing up, there's nowhere. And believe me, it's only until recently that there has been dignity education in our schools. And I've done a lot of that. But nowhere, you go to a professional school, you go to get your MBA, or you go to law school or medical, there's no dignity education in there either. Mm -hmm. And so all these really good intended people are violating dignity, not even knowing it. And so this is why I say an awareness is so important. And I did some work with some wonderful, wonderful people at Los Alamos National Laboratories out in New Mexico. And I'm so proud of them because I gave a talk before I did a workshop with them. And I said to them, look, you know, because there were all these high powered physicists and engineers and brilliant, brilliant minds, you know. And I said to them, look, think about how much time you have spent getting your positions that you have now. You probably all have PhDs, you did postdocs, you had, did fellowships, and you know, to get where you are. And I said, how much time did you spend learning about dignity? And they would all kind of laugh and say, well, not very much. We didn't learn anything about dignity. But that's the thing. We're off the charts with our intellectual advancement. But when it comes to knowing how to be together in the world, how to actually flourish in relationships, how to make relationships really strong and sustainable and viable. There's no Dignity 101 course to learn that. I teach several now, but you get my point. The ignorance is just enormous around this topic of dignity. And what I'm hoping to do, and I'm hoping your podcast will help people spread that understanding of how important it is. Just take time and learn this. Take time and Study what it means, how people want to be treated, and just take the time. I love that. And speaking of time, I appreciated the fact that you wrote that it's long work. It's not the quick fix work. And 
there's a bit of a quote that kind of runs in the background of many of these conversations I've had thus far from Aristotle, where it's says, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. And when I reflect on my education, it resonates with what you just said. It's much of the mind and not much of the heart. So I'm very curious and going through the book, thinking about those 10 elements of dignity and the temptations, I can reflect on on many violations on my part and resonate with that lack of awareness. Around those 10 elements of dignity, I was hoping to maybe touch on a couple if we could. And then if there's any more that you would like to highlight, please expound. But you write, honoring dignity is love in action. Human connections flourish when dignity is the medium of exchange. And two that I thought really resonated and I was hoping you could expound on was acknowledgement Hmm. and independence. Could you speak to those in any order that Sure. It's so interesting you choose acknowledgement because I've done some work with Archbishop Desmond Tutu in the past, and we did some work up in Northern Ireland together. It was just wonderful. And you can imagine he's one of my heroes. So to have been able to work with him was just like life-changing for me. But one of the things I asked him, I showed him these 10 elements of dignity and he looked at acknowledgement and he said, yeah, that's important. And I said, Well, look, you are the champion of reconciliation. You're the guy who helps people get back together again after horrible things have happened. I said to him, what do you think it takes to put the past to rest and to move forward in a relationship? And he said, well, by far the most important of these elements here on your list is acknowledgement. Because he said to me, when people have been roughed up, They need acknowledgement for the suffering that they've endured. You can't just sweep this stuff under the carpet. People need to hear. Let's say you had some terrible thing happen to you, Joshua, and nobody's acknowledged it. Well, what would be absolutely necessary for you to even begin to put the past to rest about that violation is if someone said to you, oh, Joshua, you should have never been treated that way. That was horrible what you went through. No human being should have to go through that. That simple recognition that what you went through was wrong. And I use that simple word wrong because often people who suffer these dignity violations, they feel like there's something wrong with them. Like, oh my God, what did I do to deserve that? But I say to them, there's nothing wrong with you. Something wrong happened to you. And you know, just that acknowledgement enables an externalization of what happened. Not only does it validate what the person is feeling like, oh my God, that was horrible, but it puts it out there into out of your soul and out of your system. And you can actually heal from it that way. And I totally agree with Archbishop Tutu. You can't put the past to rest unless you get that experience recognized as something wrong. It's just beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful and powerful. I appreciate you elaborating on that. Yeah, and I think just, I mean, all of us, just think of the last time something really horrible happened. And wouldn't it be nice if somebody, not even the person who did it to you necessarily, but if somebody just said, oh, Joshua, oh, I'm so sorry. That should have never happened. I mean, just think about that. That just makes me want to smile, just, you know, (laughs) thinking about that idea. But independence, 
I mean, they're all important, but this one, independence, this idea that you can feel freedom to be able to make decisions about your life, things that really give you a sense of hope and possibility that you can explore that. You don't have someone hanging over you in international conflicts. It's about having your freedom totally restricted. But there's a psychological dimension about independence, too, where you could just feel somebody's micromanaging you. You can't imagine how many times I hear this in the workplace, in the corporate world. Like, gosh, my boss is always hovering over micromanaging and not letting me do my job or because I or do it in my own way. So this one is, I think everybody has had an independence violation, everybody. But I wanted to tell you one other story about these elements. I went into the corporate world for the first time and I interviewed a few thousand people because it was a giant corporation, one of the big ones in the US. And I gave them the list of 10 elements and I said, okay, tell me which of these elements did you think is most violated in your organization? And I'll just say the 10. The first one's identity. Second one is recognition, acknowledgement, inclusion, safety, understanding, given the benefit of the doubt, fairness, independence, and accountability. People want to be apologized to. So of those 10, the one that's actually, and I would be curious, what do you think that 80% of the people working in the corporate world chose? Which one of those 10? I may have heard it before, but was it safety? Exactly. Yeah, because I did write about it, of course. Safety. I mean, I thought it would be like fairness or even independence or something to do with identity, but no, safety. And the thing is, Joshua, people don't feel safe to speak up to their bosses when something bad happens to them. So safety, oh boy. And this is psychological safety. They're not worried about somebody who's going to come and whack them on the side of the head. <laughs> they're worried that they're going to be humiliated. They're worried that they're going to not be able to be their authentic self at their job, that they're too afraid of somebody making fun of them, or again, fear of humiliation. And so, I mean, I think this is important for all of us to reflect on about treating other people with dignity. And one of the tools that I use in these 10 elements is asking people, how good are you at all of this? You know, how good are you at making someone feel safe when they're with you? And do you even think about whether somebody feels safe when they're with you? Or how good are you at making people feel like their freedom isn't restricted, that you're not trying to control them or micromanage? We don't even think about this usually in our relationships. And with acknowledgement, how often do you go up to somebody who's been treated badly and say, oh, no. So, you know, it's just a consciousness. It's a consciousness that we're evolving here. And it's actually kind of fun. I have to tell you. Once people learn these 10 elements of dignity and try to put them into practice in their relationships, well, the other side of it, when you see how people react to being treated so well, the other side of that is joy. You know, you had a wonderful, positive, loving relationship with people because they feel seen, they feel heard, you know, they feel validated and listened to and all of this. So, there is on the other side of it is so much return on the other side of learning this stuff. I love that. You mentioned this dignity consciousness, and maybe we could continue down that thread. You write, a deep connection 
to our inherent value and worth and to the vulnerability that we share to having our dignity violated. Could you kind of speak to that a bit and maybe also if you could tie in the three C's and how that kind of connects? Yeah. So I learned so much, as you know, from Archbishop Tutu. And one of the things he taught me was about the need to be connected to our own dignity. Because he believes, and many theologians and philosophers believe, and you and I believe, that we all are born with dignity. But the problem is, so few people actually believe that. And so few people actually have that connection to our own basic worth and value. In fact, my experience is, Joshua, that most people have a lot of self-doubt. Most people don't even think about their dignity. That word doesn't even enter their consciousness. And so the whole idea of doing dignity work is, number one, being connected to our own dignity. Because if we know that we have it deeply planted inside us, which it is, but that we just have to liberate it. I mean, I think of dignity work as liberation work, really. We have to liberate our dignity and let it be an antidote to self-doubt and to worrying about not being good enough, worrying about, oh, how am I matching up with everybody else in my workplace? And, And so that's the first connection right there, because once we have that, we can easily see the connection to other people's dignity. So the three C's that you mentioned are, I say that dignity is really about three things. It's about connection, connection, and connection. (laughs) So the first thing in establishing dignity consciousness is knowing that we have it and that we use it as a resource. We use it as our sanctuary. We use it when we're treated badly by someone. We need it to fortify our own sense of resilience so we can bounce back from that because we all are going to get treated badly. That's just where we are in the evolution of our consciousness as a human species. We don't get the dignity consciousness very well. And so the idea that in that three connections, the first one is to our own dignity. The second connection is knowing that other people have it because we're all human beings here. And the third connection is to something greater than ourselves. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Joshua, people who are religious and who have a religious practice, a faith practice, you know, you could have that connection to a higher power, your creator, however you want to think about that. When I go into an organization, I actually help people think about this third C as what is the purpose here of this organization? Is it contributing to the greater good? And could you get your people, if it is, most organizations, you can find that they're contributing to the greater good, but they're just not focused on it. They're not thinking about it, what that is. It's like a mission statement. And so I can tell you that people in a workplace, because I've seen hundreds and hundreds of examples of this, thousands really, if they feel like they're connected to something, a greater purpose in their work, their productivity increases, their engagement increases. They feel like, yeah, I'm doing this not just for myself in order to pay my rent and all that. I'm doing this because this is making a contribution to the greater good. And those three connections to your own dignity, dignity of others, and to something bigger, whatever that is, it just seems like it's a recipe for flourishing right there. It's fulfillment. This is what we want as humans. We want meaning in our lives. And these three connections can give us that. 
That's great. And that really reminds me of something that you wrote around these ripple effects of that third C of connection to something greater of dignity, well-being, finishing up a course now on organizational well-being, but those ripple effects that it can have on society, that bigger whole. Oh, yeah. Uh, couple questions, if I could, around those first two C's. You kind of mentioned the self-doubt, the inner critic, whatever may come about. But what would you advise somebody in, in your work that maybe goes to that first C and connected to our own dignity and is getting that inner critic voice that's coming up? Yeah, but. Exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, this one little exercise and suggestion and skill, really, that I suggest to people, and it's a bit of a paradox, but if you want to show yourself that you have that dignity, if you want to prove that to yourself, the fastest way to show yourself that you have dignity is by honoring it in other people, treating other people well, because the return, Joshua, on that investment People open their eyes to you. You know, people feel closer to you. People feel like they're being heard. As I said earlier, when you carefully listen to somebody, especially with that acknowledgement element that you brought up, something happens to people when you get that kind of healing moment by honoring somebody's dignity. Because we all have got wounded, and we're like the walking wounded. You know, we humans were the walking wounded. And for somebody to take the time, because, you know, I said it's about care and attention. It's really honoring dignity is demonstrating that you care enough to want to extend yourself to them, to want to acknowledge, to want to treat them as if they're a human being that's as fragile as you are. You know, because even though dignity is always there. You know, I always say that your dignity will never betray you. You may betray your dignity, but it'll never betray you. That belief in your own power actually comes from action and acting on it and showing people that you can see them, you can honor them. I said, that's a paradox, but it is a fast track to getting yourself to see the internal power that you have to affect others in a positive way. That's very helpful. I appreciate that. It's simple, right, Joshua? That's a simple formula. Simple, also difficult. <laughs> can be, can be. And you're right around some of that difficulty around the temptations, the way our biological hardwiring sets us up a bit or makes it a bit more challenging. Again, there's 10 here and not time to go through all. And I'd encourage anyone listening to pick up the book to really go through. There's so much info. But a couple, depending on false dignity, what led you to come up with that? Well, all this stuff came from researching biology, actually. But this is psychological biology in terms of how we are psychologically predisposed to behave in certain ways. So false dignity is really saying that you think that your dignity, your sense of worth comes from external sources. In other words, I've got to get that promotion or else I'm not going to feel good about myself. Or I've got to buy this house. Or if you're a student, you've got to get the A or else you just crave that praise. You crave that external validation of your worth. 
And we all feel good when those things happen. We like it when we get a promotion. We like it when we're able to live in a nice place and get a good grade on an exam. But the problem is that if you depend on your sense of well-being and feeling good about yourself for all of those things, what if you don't get it? Does that mean you're not worthy? So worthy, being in touch with that first connection, like Tutu said, is knowing that you've got dignity no matter what. No matter what you do, it's always going to be there. But you have to pay attention to it. You have to liberate it in yourself. And so the real dignity is by making that profound, it's almost like a spiritual connection to your own dignity so that you can act in ways and you can live in ways that is reflected by that inherent value and worth. You know, this is part of the work. A lot of the work with doing the first connection work is just getting people to recognize that, oh yeah, I mean, my feeling good about myself has been for a long time dependent on all these external factors. And what a freedom it is once you figure that one out, Joshua. It's such liberation. If somebody is gets the awareness and they acknowledge that I'm kind of seeing things in this way that you just described, any thoughts on ways to reframe that, you know, to look at it, not necessarily around false dignity? Yeah. Anything come to mind to really reframe that around our authentic dignity? To oh, help help kind of the thought process yeah, around yeah, yeah. it. I see what you're saying. So, I mean, I would just, this is also part of lessons learned, the lessons to learn about dignity is just watching yourself. And I have this notion, this idea of getting up on the balcony, which is basically a way to psychologically think of detaching yourself from your immediate experience. So I often use this when we get into conflicts with people that I tell them, okay, push the pause button when you feel that conflict coming on and climb up to the balcony and watch yourself. Watch yourself. What ways are you contributing to this problem? And so with false dignity, you can do exactly the same thing. You know, you can watch yourself. What are you doing when you didn't get the promotion? What kind of funk do you go into? Or what happens when your boss doesn't pat you on the back and say, hey, great job there on that project? Watch yourself. And if you find that you're being so lured by that temptation to think that, oh, I'm worthless. I should have gotten that promotion. There's something wrong with me that I didn't get it. And then you want to get up there on that balcony and rethink this whole thing. Well, what am I doing? Am I falling prey to this temptation? Yes. Yes, I am. And how can I get myself out of it? What do I do? What do I do to take myself to the place where I know my dignity isn't dependent on this? You're psychologically reframing the whole experience by saying, okay, you know what? Maybe so-and-so deserved that promotion more than I did. Maybe I really do have to work a little bit harder on this. And maybe I should go and talk to my boss about why I didn't get the promotion because maybe that would help me figure out what I could be doing differently. So, you know, it's like re-strategizing, reframing what the problem is. But first and foremost, it's just watching how you can get so easily lured into thinking, oh, I'm worthless if I didn't get X, Y, or Z. The next one, maintaining false security, which Mm. is kind of similar to that. Could you speak to that a bit? Well, you know, I think the story that I tell in the book is about women often fell into this category, although I don't like to stereotype this, but 
in my practice, often women or men as well, honestly, I don't want to say just women, will stay in a relationship longer than they should if their dignity is being violated on a regular basis. Now, this could be a job. You could be staying in a job where your boss is constantly berating you or treating you badly, and you think to yourself, gee, I can't leave this job because I need it. I need the security of my paycheck, and I really need to support my family. How can I leave this job? I just can't do it. So instead of rethinking that, this is, again, this more balcony work on all these temptations, you go to the balcony and you say to yourself, you know what, I don't need to endure all these dignity violations. I can do a couple of things. First, I can actually go talk to my boss and let him or her know what's happening, how you're reacting to things. So that's a strategy. Instead of thinking, I have to just suck this up. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say in the corporate world, oh, dignity violations, I just sucking them up as part of my job description. This happens all the time. And so what I get people to do is start thinking about what your options are here. What are your options? I mean, the worst option is actually leaving the relationship no matter what it is, because obviously you're in there for some good reason. But just rethink what you could do. You could speak to your boss. You could go out and just be looking for other positions and actively doing something that you know could be an alternative to enduring those chronic dignity violations. Or if you're in a relationship, in a personal or intimate relationship, where you've got a lot of dignity violations going on, usually they're back and forth, you know, I mean, it's not just one-sided. You learn how to talk to your partner about this stuff. And if you can talk to your partner and, and educate them around dignity and how important it is to treat each other. And I mean, a lot of marriage counselors use my dignity model to help them through these difficult relationships. Get help. You know, you might not have to leave the relationship, but I think that should be the last resort because I do not believe it's good for us to stay in a relationship that's unhealthy and chronically eating away at our soul. Yeah, thank you. And you, you're right a bit also about the leadership kind of crisis. And you cite some research, there's a crisis of leadership because people are looking kind of outside themselves, which is a bit what you've touched on already. But could you speak to the state of leadership right now and going forward? Well, Elizabeth Sama, she's written a wonderful book. I can't remember the title, but it's in my book if people want to look at it. She said, one of the reasons why we're in a leadership crisis is because people are waiting to be rescued. We think that we've got problems, there are all kinds of problems, and oh, if only we had this great leader to help us through all of this. Well, we could be that leader. We could be that person. We can't sit around and wait to be rescued. I mean, the whole idea of taking responsibility for whatever is occurring around us, you know, even if it seems insurmountable, even if it seems like wow, you know, there's all this, let's just say, for example, all this racial tension around us, and I'm not a racist, and I'm not hurting other people, violating their dignity because of their race. Well, maybe there's something you could do. Maybe there is some responsibility that you could take. Maybe you could just talk to your kids. Maybe you could talk to your, start in the conversation about race, or start a conversation about women in the workplace or whatever the issue is. I just chose racism because it's a hot issue right now. But we can take responsibility. We don't have to wait around. 
for someone or something else to solve all the problems in the world. Part of the problem is our inactivity. Honoring dignity and dignity practice is an action. And I always call it it's love and action, basically. This work of honoring dignity, I was wondering if you could speak to how it connects with humility and lifelong learning coming to this work. Mm. You know, honestly, one regret that I have is that I didn't include a chapter on humility. I mentioned humility in one of the chapters, but honestly, Joshua, I think it really needs to have more exposure in terms of what a good dignity leader looks like. And what I mean by humility, I don't mean that humility is like lowering yourself and maybe sucking up dignity violations. That's not what humility is. In my mind, Humility is not lowering yourself, but elevating others. Hmm. So you don't have to take away from yourself. You can be your big, powerful self as long as you see that others have the same qualities. You want to elevate others by honoring their dignity. There's that connection there between humility and knowing when to step up, knowing when to give people the limelight, knowing when to showcase other people. I mean, all these things that we love when our boss does this for us. And it's a simple thing, elevating others instead of lowering yourself. Don't lower yourself. Keep your power, but empower. It's like keeping your power at the same time, empowering others. That's great. Between the two books, I was really curious around the first book, Dignity, and then Leading with Dignity. Is there anything that changed as you were writing Leading with Dignity, any concept or the way that you think about dignity that may have changed? Well, I don't think anything really changed substantively in terms of what I thought it was or building the principles around it, like the elements and the temptations and so on. But I think what I didn't realize was the extent to which leaders can affect change. I think I didn't know that until the end of writing that book and the understanding the impact of this in a leadership role. And again, it doesn't have to be a CEO of a corporation or a head of a hospital or anything, but you know, there's a lot of leadership that each and every one of us can engage in on a daily basis, even if it's with our families, you know, even if it's with our kids or the neighbors down the road. This is a practice. This is actually, and again, I told you earlier that I think it's spiritual practice, learning how to honor this, honor dignity. And I think all of us both want to, I mean, I've never heard anybody who doesn't aspire to want to live a life where dignity is part of their consciousness, their own dignity. But if we can get that recognition and to know that, whoa, there is so much power behind this idea. It can make relationships work. It can heal. It can empower people. I mean, I guess the lights that went off at the end of that second book were, oh my God, this is so big. I can't see the edges of it. <laughs> I cannot see the edges of this. And so I think that's what happened. I love that. And that's a great way I had as a way to wrap up. And I'm a greatly appreciative of your time and want to respect that. You close the final chapter with a quote from Teilhard, interesting scientist, theologian, 
Someday after mastering the winds, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness the energies of love. And then for a second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful quote. What does that quote mean to you? Well, just what I said just earlier, that once you understand this, you learn about it because it's the power that it gives us. It's like jet fuel, you know, it's fire. It's fire in the best of possible imaginations, you know, and best possible metaphors because it can change so much. It can do so much. And if you think about how Prometheus always said that one of the greatest gifts from the gods was when we were given fire, because then life could go on. But this is a way of showing us that if we actually spend the time make the commitment to do this dignity work, to understand it, to treat each other in ways that demonstrate that we are worthy, all of us. And we remind ourselves, remind each other of our worth. To me, that's love in action because there's no greater way of making a connection with someone than by honoring their dignity. And as I point out in that last chapter, I think if you're looking for connection, because love is connection, a lot of the philosophers and theologians, like the quote that you just read, they all believe that love is connection. And there's no better way of making a connection than having someone feel like they're being seen, they're being heard, they're being honored, they're being listened to. So that's the way I wrapped up that last chapter. It's really love in action. It's a beautiful chapter and a beautiful end to a great book. If I could ask one question to close it out on the podcast, we often explore some perennial figures and some of these timeless principles like dignity, I would put in that category from history. Is there anyone that comes to mind as a model, maybe past or present, that we could really look to in terms of leading with dignity? Oh, well, I think Nelson Mandela is my go-to dignity leader. And because, you know, he was one of the people who said when he went into Robben Island into the prison, he said, well, you know, I really have to find out what the guards are up to because we have to survive in here. And he realized that the guards tried to strip them of their dignity, all the political prisoners. And he said, well, I, once I found out that that's what they were up to, I realized I was going to survive because nobody Nobody can strip that dignity from me. I'm not willing to let it go for any man or any institution. And so just that ferocity, he knew that he had dignity. He knew that everybody else did. I mean, look what he did with Invictus. You know, you know, you probably saw that movie Invictus and how he turned around that whole mindset in South Africa with white people in South Africa. I mean, not entirely turned around, but he avoided bloodshed. And it was because he understood dignity. So there's he and there's Tutu. And I'm personally working now. I'm on the board of the Shirley Chisholm Foundation. I don't know if you remember Shirley Chisholm. She was a black congresswoman. She was the first black congresswoman. I think she was the first. But she actually ran for president. And I'm telling Mm. her leadership, she was another one. Most people don't know about her, but... Somebody maybe your audience can do some research on, but I'm working with that organization and because I think she was such a powerful dignity leader. I mean, there are a lot of everyday people, and I'm sure you could name a few yourself if you think about it. That would be an interesting way to close this out, to ask your listeners to think about 
who do they think is a dignity leader and why? What do they do to deserve that title? Because we've got to be thinking consciously about this all the time. This is a survival issue. If we're going to survive as a species, let me tell you, we're going to have to figure out how to treat each other better and how to cooperate better and how to get along better. And so, yeah, wouldn't that be fun to ask your listeners? I'd love to hear what they say. Definitely. I'll definitely do that. That's great. I love that. Before we wrap up, Donna, is there anything that we didn't discuss that maybe we should have? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I feel like I've rambled on for quite a while. (laughs) No, it was lovely. I'm just grateful that people like you, Joshua, are doing this sort of giving your audiences this kind of opportunity to to learn about things they might not have necessarily thought about on their own. And you're opening up this space for people to reflect in a deep way about their lives, about their purpose in life, about meaning and how they want to be, you know, what do you want to stand for in your life? And I'll tell you what, getting a dignity platform is the best place to stand on, no matter what you're going to do, Mm. no matter what you choose. That is great. It's been an absolute privilege. Where can people go to learn more about your work, Donna? Well, my website, all lowercase dr, Donna Hicks, drdonnahicks.com. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff online with things that I've, I have a TED talk. I mean, that would be a good place to start. And my two books. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'll link that all in the show notes. Dr. Donna Hicks, I really appreciate your time today. It's truly been a pleasure. You're most welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.